Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, first up on this week's edition of The Intersection, not only is she the founder of a successful pretzel chain, but Ann Byler is a woman of faith who has found her faith in Christ severely tested, especially in the aftermath of a problematic relationship. You'll be hearing a portion of her story. Also, more coverage of the recent Getty Music Worship Conference Sing 2019 in Nashville with conversation material from one of the conference presenters, Stuart Townend, the co-writer with Keith Getty of the classic modern-day hymn in Christ Alone. He provided some insight into the song he composed, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Plus, Jessica Wollstenholme was instrumental in putting together a new Bible product for children, along with VeggieTales co-creator Phil Vischer. In a recent conversation, she discussed with me some of the elements of sharing God's story with children. And on this edition of The Intersection, there's a new study that fails to provide convincing evidence for a genetic cause for homosexuality. Peter Sprigg of Family Research Council provides some analysis of this extensive study and the implications of its findings. Finally, from Ligonier Ministries and Reformation Bible College, Stephen Nichols, one of the speakers at the Getty Music Sing Conference, shared with me about the power of worship, including the unifying force that corporate worship can be. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Ann Byler is the founder of Auntie Ann Soft Pretzels, a popular food chain. She spoke with me recently about her dedication to the Lord after a dark period of life following the death of her child, leading to the deterioration of her marriage and abuse from a pastor to whom she went for comfort and counsel. She faithfully tells her story about the healing work of God in her life in the book, The Secret Lies Within, an inside-out look at overcoming trauma and finding purpose in the pain. She shared some snapshots with me recently. Here now is Auntie Ann Byler. During those years, there were three things that I discovered about confession. One was bedside prayers. We always do that. As believers, we have that right. We have that privilege. We talk to Jesus about everything that happened in our lives because we know He hears and He forgives when we come to Him. But what I discovered as well is journaling, which I wrote down. I began to write my feelings out. Scary, but it's what I did. And the third thing was then, the most scary of all is the one to another confession. I would rather pray. I would rather journal. But please Mm. don't make me confess. I was, uh, God really spoke to my heart, then get up off your knees and go tell your husband. Uh, That was the hardest thing to do because now I weighed 92 pounds. I was a shell. I I was uh, had no self-esteem, no confidence. Remember, I was unlovable, unforgivable, unchangeable. There was nothing in me. Mm. Uh, What you cannot give what you don't have. So I went with my heart racing, my palms sweating. I got in my little blue pickup truck and went to the body shop in Troop, Texas, where my husband was working. And as he got up from behind the desk, all I could say to him. The rumors were starting to fly around the church because pastor had just left, and rumors were starting to, um, people were starting to talk about the women that he was involved with and the money that he was taking. And and so I went to my husband and I said, uh, hon, um, you, you heard about the pastor and the women. And I was looking at him and he just looked at me and shook his head, yes. And then I said, uh, I'm one of those women. I'm sorry, and I'm a sorry person. That's all I said, because I could not bear the look 
on his face and didn't give him time to say one word to me. I just had to leave because there was nothing inside of me that could comfort him or even say any more than what I said. I went home and I, I felt like the whole world, was, the weight of the world was on my shoulders, the guilt, the pain, blame, the shame. And it just really hit me like, what have I done? And God spoke to me in that moment. And he said to me, he who is forgiven much loves much. And I, I remember the comfort that I felt from him, but at the same time, I'm waiting for my husband to come home and tell me to leave him because mm. I knew. He came home around four later in the afternoon and said, we need to talk tonight after the girls are in bed. And we, I waited anxiously for another five hours. But I didn't know during that time that he had gone and gotten on his knees before the Lord and said, God, what do you want me to do? My husband's a good man. We're married 51 years, September the 14th. He's a very good man, godly man, loves God, loves his family. But when he got his information, he did not know what to do. And he called a counselor, and a counselor said to him, if you can find it in your heart to love your wife as Christ loves you, not the church, but as Christ loves you, there may be a slim chance for your marriage. And then Jonah said to him, how do I do that? And the counselor was very wise when he said, I can't tell you how to do that. God will show you. Mm. And he didn't tell me that for months and months about that time with God. He just began to love me. He never criticized me. He never asked me, why did I do this? He never condemned me or made me feel guilty. And what he did that day, he, he said that when, when he got that revelation, he said it took all the focus off of me and what I had done. To the focus, he said, was now. My focus was to toward God and asking him, how is it that you love me? And how can I be that love to Anne? And he will tell you today, if you ever have him on your show, <laughs> he will tell you that he's still on that journey of how is it that Christ loves him? But I experienced from my husband unconditional love, the love of Christ. He became Jesus in the flesh to me. And without that, without my confession and without his love, our marriage would have been destroyed. But God set us on a path of redemption. Ann Byler here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, Anti-Ann, with an E, Byler, B-E-I-L-E-R, dot com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Stuart Townend. He is a singer and songwriter, has written or co-written classic songs, such as How Deep the Father's Love for Us, In Christ Alone, and The Power of the Cross. He was one of the presenters of the Getty Music Worship Conference, Sing 2019. And in our conversation, he provided some insight into the song he composed, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Here now is Stuart Townend. How Deep the Father's Love was a, was a, a surprise to me in the sense that um, I'd been writing for a few years, 
part of a, a, a church uh, that was on the south coast of, of the UK, a large church. And um, I was tending to write what we n- more generally think of as modern worship song. So it was more contemporary in style, musically, and perhaps lyrically it was a little bit more contemporary. And then what happened for me, and I, I don't quite know how or why, I, a melody popped into my head, as often happens for, for people, and I kind of wrote it down and uh, then wrote some, began to write some lyrics for it. Um, and uh, it just kind of like, it, it was there. I didn't think anything particularly of it. I thought, oh, I've not written a hymn before, but it sounds like a hymn-like tune. And I did what writers often do, which is you kind of go, that melody came really easily to me. I've probably stolen it from somewhere. So then you kind of play it for everyone and go, do you, you know, is this familiar to you? And, and generally I was, I was playing it and people were going, no, I've not heard that before. So I thought, okay, well, maybe it is something I can do. I played it for my pastor. I remember my pastor said, yeah, it's okay. And so then I began to to use it in various places. And then it kind of seemed to take on on a, a, a bit of a life of its own. And I think maybe because when you write in a hymn-like kind of way, it is accessible to a whole range of denominations, even those that would not necessarily engage with more modern contemporary worship songs. And so I think that was an appeal of it. The other thing that's interesting for me about... Um, how deep the father's love and still gives it enduring appeal for me and makes it relevant now would be related to what we were discussing earlier because actually uh, the one thing I do find difficult when people are talking about substitutionary atonement and the wrath of God is that they think that those elements seem to portray a picture of a vengeful God who is being appeased by the son as if somehow two elements of the trinity are at loggerheads with each other what How Deep the Father's Love says is it, an agreement between the two of them and both of them knowing the pain. So it's not only the pain of Christ on the cross, it's the pain of the father seeing his son sacrificed. Um, you know, the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And that turning the face away is just not being able to bear the pain. It was an agreement that this was for our sake. This, he, they were willing to go to this, to this length to redeem us. But it was a painful process for both of them, not just for the son, but for the father. But it was a loving agreement out of love for two elements, three elements of the Trinity for us. And uh, I think, in a sense, that is a counterbalance, if you like, to, to some of the ways that people uh, perceive in Christ alone. That actually, this is about the love of God being expressed in the three persons of the Trinity for us and sacrifice for us. Stuart Townend joining us today. It is the Sing 2019 Getty Music Worship Conference. And Stuart, as we conclude, I just want you to share what you have seen God do through this conference. This is, I believe, the third year that there has been a SING conference, and the venue keeps getting bigger year after year. So tell me what you've seen God do and what you see as the significance of this event. I think the SING conference is a significant event. First of all, can I say I'm really proud of my friend Keith Actually, my friends, Keith and Kristen, because I've known Kristen for many years as well and have written with with Kristen as well. And uh, I think what they have shown faith to do, to take a risk and put a conference like this on, which is no mean thing. It's a, there's a lot of risk involved in doing this kind of thing. and uh, But believing that God is in it 
and that it's something that God's calling them to do. And to see the people flocking and coming to it and being blessed by it is a wonderful, is a wonderful thing. So I think it does have a significance. I think it's an opportunity, particularly for those who are looking to um, add into their repertoire of songs, songs of content, songs that speak about more deeply perhaps than some other songs. Of, uh, of who God is and describing in, in good poetic language and writing songs that actually will work across the board, not just in the more contemporary style churches, but in some of the more traditional churches as well. It brings together musical styles. There's an orchestra that's singing. There's a, there's a choir that is hundreds and hundreds of people who are singing. And so it's bringing all those different elements as well as a contemporary band. And um, it's bringing all those together. So it is very, very significant. And uh, some of the, the, the times when we've been singing together, of the goodness of God in all sorts of different situations is a very powerful thing. Stuart Townend here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, townend.co.uk. Well, next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Jessica Wollstenholme. She is the editorial director of the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. She worked with VeggieTales co-creator Phil Vischer on the project and discussed various aspects of it. Here now from that conversation is Jessica Wollstenholm. I am very passionate about families and faith. I have two children, a daughter who's 11 and a son who's 8. Um, and I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my parents just really tried to authentically lead us into a relationship uh, with Jesus. And uh, my mom actually passed away about six years ago when my kids were really young. And just a lot of reflection on how I was raised and the legacy I wanted to continue for for my kids and my family led me to, to do a, a lot of writing in the family and faith space, uh, trying to um, provide tools for families that, that would allow them in the midst of their busy lives to make faith um, a very organic and um, culture uh, thing in their home so that it wasn't about something that they had to do or accomplish, but it became, you know, just a part of who they were. So that's my passion. That's, that's kind of the driving force of all of, of my writing and the work that I do. So when uh, I had the opportunity to come on board with Jelly Telly to be their editorial director, it was a natural fit and honestly a dream job um, and an open door that the Lord provided. So um, I, I started that about 18 months ago and jumped right into the creation and the development of this Bible. So it's a really exciting um, time for us to finally see it um, available for families. Well, you certainly have to be very excited about that. And as you began this project, as you developed the concept along with Phil Vischer and the team there at Jelly Telly, what are some of the components that you wanted to put into this Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids? Well, Phil has such an amazing um, gift for, you know, taking big Bible concepts and presenting them in a way that kids can understand. Um, he uses language and a tone and just a whimsy that kids can relate to, but he doesn't water down the truth and the, the Word of God. And so we knew that we wanted to keep that um, tone and that narrative in this Bible. We knew that we wanted um, Phil to to kind of use his voice um, to kind of bring kids along 
uh, this journey. And, you know, we called it the Laugh and Learn Bible because Phil is funny. <laughs> and you would think that um, certain, there's a lot of Bible stories that aren't funny, um, but, he, but he actually uh, accomplished uh, humor in a lot of those stories. So for instance, we, um, we address the book of Leviticus in this Bible. There is a story about laws, and um, it's actually one you can laugh out loud through. So um, that's not something that's ever been done before in a children's Bible. Uh, if you're familiar with the What's in the Bible series, that the video series that Phil created, um, that was kind of his last big project after VeggieTales. Um, we took that same narrative that goes from Genesis to Revelation. We didn't leave anything out, really. Um, we went through uh, each book of the Bible, each each big story, each big Bible moment, um, and we and he threaded the gospel throughout. So kids will will come to understand, you know, God's rescue plan and and our need for Him. Um, and what Jesus accomplished and the relationship we can have with him. Jessica Wollstenholm here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website laughandlearnbible.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of other platforms. Find out more when you visit the Faith Radio website or the Meeting House homepage. Also, there's a link to the Intersection podcast. You can find it in the Media Center or through iTunes. Plus, there are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content with recently added content from the Getty Music Worship Conference Sing 2019, as well as the Christian Product Expo International, both of those events occurring in the Nashville area. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Peter Sprigg is Senior Fellow for Policy Studies for Family Research Council. In a recent conversation with me, he provided analysis of a new extensive study that has determined that there is no so-called gay gene, and it does not establish a genetic determination for homosexuality. Here now from that recent conversation is Peter Sprigg. For years, uh, the uh, LGBT rights movement has made the claim uh, implicitly or explicitly uh, that um, that the, the various legislative proposals that they have uh, put forward, especially for um, treating sexual orientation as a protected category under civil rights laws, the way that race is protected, um, they say, well, we're born gay and we can't change, and um, therefore being gay is like being black, and that's why you should uh, treat it the same way under the law. Well, um, there's never been very good evidence for that. Um, The the strongest uh, evidence that would support that would be if they could find a gene, what's been called a gay gene, that is something that determines that if you have this genetic characteristic, then that determines that you will be homosexual. It's an immutable thing, and uh, there's no flexibility there. Uh, They've been looking for this 
gay gene for uh, almost three decades now. Uh, there were a few studies in the early 1990s that were highly touted as showing some limited support for this idea, although they really didn't show much support. But this study is by far the most comprehensive uh, effort to find a link uh, between genetics and homosexuality that's ever been undertaken. Uh, they had a massive database. They were able to get access to two large databases of genetic information, one in the United Kingdom and one here in the United States, nearly 500,000 subjects. Mm. And, uh, and they also had information, at least on one question, about their sexual orientation, which is whether they had ever had uh, sex with a person of the same sex. And um, they tried to see if there was any correlation between the genetic makeup of these individuals and, um, and the, their answer to that question of whether they had ever had homosexual sex. Um, they found uh, that uh, at most uh, one-third of the variation in, in sexual orientation in the population is linked to some genetic, might be linked to some genetic factor. But that means that at least two-thirds of it has nothing to do with your genetics. It has to do with social, environmental, and cultural influences. Two-thirds uh, of, the, of the influence comes from those things. Um, and it also found that, um, that there is no one gene. They looked at the entire human genome, and they found there is definitely not a single gene that is uh, determinative of someone's sexual orientation. So the idea of looking for one gay gene um, is pretty much laid to rest altogether by this study. Now, unfortunately, the media is continuing to spin it as showing, uh, you know, sort of links between genetics and homosexuality as though, uh, as though this sort of offer some support for the idea that there's some genetic influence and so forth. But um, we have to remember what, what the LGBT movement has been pushing is the idea that your genes determine your sexual orientation, not just that they have some vague influence upon it. And that has pretty much been disproved by this study. They found, in fact, that you could not predict uh, on the individual level, well, on the population level, they said, oh, there's, there's this, um, you know, 32% uh, relationship. But on the individual level, they said quite explicitly, it is impossible to predict which individual is homosexual on the basis of their genetics. Peter Sprigg here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection podcast from the Getty Music Worship Conference 2019 called Sing, which was held in Nashville, I had the opportunity to talk with Stephen Nichols. He is president of Reformation Bible College and chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries. In the course of our conversation, we talked about the power of worship, including the unifying force that corporate worship can be. Here now from that conversation is Stephen Nichols. The thing I find fascinating about the Gettys, when you you know this is true, when you start talking about church music and worship, it tends to almost instantly divide. And here what, what Keith and the Getty music, Keith and Christian and Getty music is able to do is they say music and it brings people together. 
And this conference is, is really a wonderful testament to the variety of folks who are brought together with this common cause of returning this wonderful gift of congregational singing you know, back to the church. And uh, I love what Keith is about here, love being a part of this, and uh, just grateful to be here. I have to think of this phrase. I'm sure you've probably never heard the phrase worship wars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's usually what happens. But there's a seems like there's a, a good peace here. And uh, in this peacetime, we can really make some advances. Well, and let's talk about that, because that's an incredible point you just made, that that music so often becomes such a divisive factor in the church. And here the Gettys are bringing thousands of people together, and there is unity, there's a commonality of spirit. So there obviously is something that, that God has inspired to bring people together. What What is that as you see it? I think it's a testament on their part to put our focus on where it needs to be. When we're talking about music, we're talking fundamentally about the worship of God, which fundamentally we're talking about theology. We're also Bible-centered in our worship. So we go back to last year's conference, it was on the Psalms. This is the, the hymnal of the Old Testament, the Psalms, and the rich expressions, the, the whole spectrum of emotions and experience are there in the Psalms. Elation and depression, victory and defeat, it's all there, put right before the, the children of God as they express themselves before a holy God. So to focus last year on Psalms and this year to focus on the life of Christ. So I think they're, they're asking the right questions when it comes to music. It's not about style. It's not about preference. It's about theology, and it's about recognizing. You know, you, you peel back the heavens in Revelation, and there's the eternal worship chorus, worshiping God and His purity and holiness on the throne and the Lamb. And that's what church music is about. It's, it's in miniature, this joining of this eternal chorus that we'll all someday be a part of perfectly, right? Not just perfect pitch, but perfect hearts tuned perfectly to this pure, holy, righteous God who is our God. And so I think what the Gettys are doing here is really valuable for the church to just force us to think theologically and ask those good theological questions and has a way, you know, we talk about theology dividing. Sometimes theology unites because we're, we have a common confession. That's what I see here. Stephen Nichols is joining us today. We are at the Getty Music Worship Conference Scene 2019 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville. And you are involved in this conference. Again, as you mentioned, the theme is the life of Jesus. So tell me, one of the questions I find myself asking is, what's, what's your role? What's your story as far as your participation here? Yeah, so I'm doing a topic called Confessing Christ, Theology to Doxology. And one of the things we find, you go back to the pages of the New Testament, and we find this in Philippians 2. Many New Testament scholars think that Philippians 2 is a hymn that Paul's quoting. We have Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 who says, Great is our common confession. And then he goes on to list these things that Christ has done. And so right there in the pages of the New Testament, we see how theology leads to doxology. How creed writing is right there in the pages of the New Testament. We go to Revelation 4. We mention this. What do we find? The worship of a holy God. But this causes John to weep. 
because there's a barrier, right, between us and God. So then we get Revelation chapter 5. And when we get into Revelation chapter 5, now we find the Lamb. And so because of who Christ is, because of what he's done, we can worship God in purity. And so in my talk, I just want to remind us that confessing the person and work of Christ has been a crucial part of the church's worship from the pages of the New Testament and right on through the centuries, and that we need to get back to that as well and see that in our churches and in our worship. Stephen Nichols here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website ligonier.org or reformationbiblecollege.org. Ligonier Ministries also sponsors the State of Theology Survey. Learn more when you go to the website thestateoftheology.com. Well, this has been the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to faithradio.org and access the programming section of the website. Conversations from The Meeting House program can be found through the Media Center, accessible through The Meeting House homepage, also through the Faith Radio app and a variety of other platforms. The Intersection Podcast is accessible in the Media Center as well as through iTunes. The link is provided through the homepage. Plus, there are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And there's that link to video content. Again, the website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.